which is me. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. See, we do it professionally here. We know what we're doing. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God falls rightly on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience in well-being, well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey, obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Thank you. I am not Pastor West, if you're wondering. He sent out an email this week, and Pastor West has COVID. He tested positive, so him and his family are joining us through the live stream. But he um, called me Tuesday asking if I could preach today, and I've been working on this sermon. So here I am. It's good to be back with everyone after two weeks off. Who's excited to be back in the house of God? I know I am worshiping and praying with everyone. It's great to be back. As you've probably gathered from the scripture reading, we won't be in 1 John today, but we will be looking at Romans chapter 2. Really, we're going to be focusing at the first five verses, verses 1 through 5, but I felt it was good to kind of get the, um, the context of what Paul is talking about here. So um, if you're can join me into Romans chapter 2. But before we get started, how many of you guys have had kids or, or have kids? By a show of hands, let's see them. Yes. So if you've had kids or have had kids or you've worked with kids, you've probably at some extent had to deal with some type of tattletelling. Someone coming to you and trying to get someone else in trouble or say, Mom, Mom, so-and-so did this. I know it's something that happens quite frequently in our house. And usually when, when, when one of them comes and says, Judah's doing this or, or Zion's doing this, the first question we, as parents, they usually ask is, well, what were you doing? And then that's when you get the, well, um, I did a little, but, but, but they finished it. I told them not to. It's like, well, how, how did they get the bag? It was way up, well, I, I might have. And uh, then you have to have that conversation, right? You're older. You know more. You've been living longer. You understand the rules better. That's kind of what's going on here in the start of Romans 2. If you were to go back to Romans 1 and read chapter 1, you'll see that Paul really spends the better half of chapter 1 just 
kind of explaining why those who are unrighteous, those who don't have Christ, why they are guilty of their sin, even though they may not believe in God. He says in chapter, in, in verse 20, that even the creation of the world and all the things that have made, that they are without excuse because the world itself, creation itself, speaks to the truth that there is a God. And so they're not guilty because they've had, they've had a chance to acknowledge God for who he is, but refuse. They've suppressed the truth, as it says, as Paul says in Romans 1. And so he spends the better half of Romans 1 just kind of railing against and, and showing why the unrighteous are guilty. And then he kind of changes focus here in chapter 2. You know, I imagine he probably understands that there are certain people in the congregation probably saying, Amen, Paul, yeah, that's right. They are sinful. They are guilty. And Paul says, well, slow it down a little bit. Because sometimes you yourself are guilty of the same thing. If you condemn someone, but then you in turn do the same sin, you are condemning yourself. And so, Paul, that's kind of what we're going to be focusing on. Really, the first five verses is how Paul kind of switches it to the believer. And there's some debate who Paul is addressing here, whether he's addressing the Jewish people or whether he's addressing Gentile believers. But I think at the core, what we have here is Paul is addressing those who have the truth, whose eyes have been opened to the truth. He's addressing just believers. If you have, if you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you know the truth and you can recognize sin for sin, but yet choose to live in that sin, then you are condemning yourself. So Paul here, he's focusing on those who have the truth, but don't repent, don't show it with their lifestyle. And that's true of the church today in many instances where we tend to focus so much on the outside world while not checking on ourselves, not looking at our own lives, if we need to be repenting or not. And so Paul here focuses on those who perhaps have truth but aren't living a life according to the truth. So that's what we're going to be focusing today. It's in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And if there's anything I want you guys to leave with today, the main idea here is that the kindness of God is meant to lead people to repentance. That's what it meant. When God has been kind, when he's been merciful and gracious to people, it's to lead them to repentance. It's not to build themselves up, not for them to feel like they are better than other people, but it's to lead them to repentance. Like I said, we'll be in Romans chapter 2, verse 1 through 5, and I'll read it again. Paul writes, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on a day of wrath when God's judgment will be revealed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to gather with our church family, Father. After two weeks off, it's great to be back in your house and singing songs with our brothers and sisters, praying with our brothers and sisters, listening to your word, Father. We ask that you bless this time that we have together. 
that it is a time of, of growth for each and every one of us who is here and all those who are listening in, Father. That you show us areas where we're perhaps falling short of giving you praise, of pointing people to you, Father. We ask that you eliminate any distractions today, Lord. May we spend, just be able to spend the next several moments listening to your word preach and just listening to what you want us to gather, Father. Father, help me to speak boldly. Help me to remember the things that you've put on my heart, Father. Be with us in this time, Father. Be with those who aren't here. Be with Pastor West and his family as they are in quarantine, Father. Bless this time together. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be edifying to your people. In your name we pray. Amen. First point of three is that sin is sin no matter who is doing the sinning. We have this tendency to think that, that, that other people's sin is probably worse than ours. And what we see here. Paul says it doesn't matter if you recognize sin for sin, if you can look at someone's life and say, that's wrong, that is sin, but yet do it yourself, you are condemning yourself. The people here who Paul is talking about, they recognize sin. They just don't see it as wrong, right? Because the world can look out into, into the world, and when they see something wrong, they can say that there's, nothing, there's something wrong there. Something's not right. The world can look out into the world and say murder is wrong, stealing is wrong. But those who know and have God can look at it and say, that's sin. That's turning against the ways of God, and they are earning themselves a one-trip trip to hell. And so we, people, these people recognize sin for sin. Not only is it wrong, but they're saying this is sin against God, a holy and righteous God. And the very fact that they are able to recognize sin for sin, they, that condemns them as Paul says because you do the same thing he says therefore you have no excuse you don't have an excuse because you know what sin is you can look out into the world you can look out into other people and recognize sin for sin so you have no excuse every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you the judge practice the very same things the people in chapter 1, they were guilty of just having what we call general revelation. That they can look out into the world and the world points to the truth, the fact that there is a God. But the people that we're talking about here in chapter 2, their eyes have been opened to the scriptures. They have come to know God as their Lord and Savior. And so they have, as we would call special revelation, they're able to open up the Bible and understand it for its truth. And so they see sin, they call sin out, but then they live the same life that they're calling out against. They con they're condemning people. They're not pointing people to Christ. They're not saying you're living in sin. Turn to God. Turn to Jesus as, as the propitiation for your sins. They're just looking at people saying, that's wrong. You're living in sin. You're going to hell, and that's it. There is no pointing to Christ. One commentator writes, Paul tells the Jews that their condemnation of Gentile transgression proves that they know such evil merits only eternal death. They understand that. They understand by living, by doing these things, their people are going to hell, but yet they still are doing them themselves, as we see here. Really, Paul here, he's getting to a heart issue. It's a very common heart issue. It's really the sin of hypocrisy. Right? That's what's going on here. People looking at other people, condemning other people, but then living the same way that they're condemning. 
you were to Google hypocrisy, the first thing that comes up is the practice of claiming to have moral standards or beliefs to which one's own behavior does not conform. Their behavior contradicts what they're claiming to believe, what they're claiming to hold truth. Their very behavior, the way they live, is contradicting that. These people, the way they're judging, it's this smugness to them. They are walking out with, with the chest puffed up, saying, that is wrong. That is wrong, and you are going to hell for that. But then turning around and doing the same exact thing. That's the type of judgment that Paul here is condemning. If I can just pause real quick. What I don't want us to see, what Paul is not saying is that we should never call out sin when we see it. That's not what Paul is saying here. We know from some of his other writings, like in Galatians 6, verses 1 through 2, Paul says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Again, Paul in Ephesians 4.25 says, tell, tells us to speak truth to one another. And in Colossians, he says, to teach and admonish one another, to lift each other up. James 5, 19 through 20 tells us to bring back our brothers who have wandered from the truth. So there is a call to hold our brothers and sisters in Christ accountable. That's why Jesus in Matthew 18, verse 15, gives us a way to address sin with fellow brothers. We are to call and hold each other accountable. But the point of holding each other accountable is to call someone back to Christ. It's to point them to repentance. It's to lead them to a restoration to their God. It's not to condemn them because we don't judge people. We don't condemn people. That's left for God. We call out sin when we see it because we want to see people restored to their Savior. If you're not pointing people to true repentance and you're just condemning them, then you're being guilty of exactly what Paul is saying here. So we are to call out. We are to hold each other accountable. We are to lead people back to Christ and, and bring them back, restore them. That is the type of, that's how we call out sin. We don't condemn people the way that we see here. We shouldn't be living our lives like the, like the, um, the Pharisee in Luke 18, the one who walks into the temple and the tax collector walks in with him. And he says, the Pharisee prays, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed, Thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, idolaters, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus goes on, he says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but one who humbles himself will be exalted. We should not be like the Pharisee. We should not be living a life of hypocrisy. We should be willing to deal with our own sin before calling out other people's sin. Right? Jesus has something, says something about that in Matthew 7, 5. Something about a plank and a log. You guys know what I'm talking about. We don't downplay our own sin. We focus on our sin. We come before God, and his mercy and grace should lead us to repent before a holy and righteous God. The problem sometimes with the church today is that we think that we are deemed more righteous by the sin that we call out in other people. 
rather than repenting before a holy and righteous God, the fact that we're willing to call out other people's sin, somehow that gains us favor. And maybe you got man food, but you don't have God food in that, and to that extent. God sees everything. He knows all sin. God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. You, just because you read your Bible, just because maybe you pray, does not mean that you can live however you want. doesn't mean that you can continue sinning. Sin is sin no matter who's doing the sinning. We condemn other people's idols all while ignoring our own idols in our lives. We have to focus on ourselves at times. We need to be living a life of repentance. We don't have God fooled. We may think that we do, but we do not have God fooled. Point number two, God will judge every sin according to his character. We see this in verses two and three. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Really, Paul's not really asking a question there. That's kind of rhetorical. He's, it's assumed that you guys understand what the answer is. He says, all who, who judge, he says in verse 2, God, we know that God, the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Understand this, all sin, every, each and every sin will be accounted for. The unrighteous person in chapter 1, their sin will be judged and dealt with accordingly. But also our sin will be judged and dealt with accordingly. God will judge sin. And the beautiful thing, maybe, maybe it's scary for you, I don't know. But the beautiful thing is that God will judge according to his own character. Not according to what we think God is or according to our standards, but according to who the scriptures say that God is. God will judge sin according to his own character. Rightly falls, or as the Holmes Christian Standard Bible says, we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on the truth. We know that the scriptures tells us that God is truth, that God is just, that God is good and he is holy and he is righteous. As Psalms 11.7 says, God is righteous. That is a part of who he is. That is his essence, his character. And that is how God is going to judge sin. It's according to who he is. We see it all throughout the book of Leviticus. God says, you shall be holy for I am holy. We understand that it's a part of who God is to his core. And that is how God is going to judge sin. He knows all things. He's, he's omniscient. He even knows our secret sins, those sins that we think we have hidden from the world, that we think we have hidden from our spouse or from our family member. God knows those sins. See this in Psalm 98. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. That is why God can judge in according to truth because he knows it all. He sees it all and he will, do, he will dwell out the punishment that is right and accordingly to our sin. The one thing that we can be sure of is that God's judgment will be just. And I think we don't, we, don't, we don't truly grasp just how righteous and holy our God is. We either, we either we don't understand that or we really think we're good people. We downplay our sin like it's not a big deal before a holy and righteous God. 
oftentimes what happened is if we were to look at Romans chapter 1, we read starting from verse 18 and we kind of just zone out after verse 27, right? Where God says in verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. And then we kind of just stop reading or we zone out after that. And we think, yeah, that is what God's going to judge. That is wrong and that is sin. And yes, it is. But we also have to finish reading. Reading what God says, what Paul says in verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to the base mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetedness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Kind of zone out after that, right? We we really don't want to hear that part because maybe that deals with some of the sin in our lives. We have a tendency to focus on, on the big sins, a.k.a. the sins that we're not necessarily committing. And that's what we choose to focus on. But the truth is, is, is covetedness is covetedness no matter what. Whether you act on that or not, you're still coveting something. Whether you spent your stimulus check on something that your neighbor had, whether it was a PlayStation 5 or a new gun, whatever it may be, you saw what your neighbor had and you wanted it. Maybe you didn't act out on it like your other neighbor, but you still coveted it. We understand that that's still sin. Maybe you don't hate someone, but maybe you do carry around a little bit of ill will. Maybe you choose to treat someone a little bit less than you should because you don't really like them. I don't hate them, but, you know, I may have some ill will, some, a little bit of malice towards them. Sin is sin no matter who is doing the sin. And you may say, I'm not a murderer, but we understand what Jesus says in Matthew 5.22 when he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Sin is sin no matter what. In God's eye, sin is sin. And maybe we, we don't think ourselves, we think we're better, a little bit better. We don't act out on it as much as others. But in the eyes of God, sin is sin, and he will judge sin according to his character because God is truth. And as I said, he is the essence of truth. He is just, he is good, he is holy, and he is righteous. And it's according to those characteristics that God will punish sin. He will punish evil. He must because it's in his character. He must judge sin understand this, that there is no escaping the judgment of God. For the non-believer and believer, like there is no escaping the judgment of God. We see that in verse 3. Or do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? There is no escaping the judgment of God. 
You're either being judged according to your own deeds, according to your own so-called righteousness, or you're being judged according to the righteousness of Christ. You're either going to stand before God according to your deeds, guilty of your sin, or you're going to stand before God clothed in the righteousness of Christ, deemed worthy because of what Christ did, not what you did, not because of some sin that you've called out, not because you've prayed five times a day or read your Bible, but because Christ's righteousness is going to be imputed Onto you, there is nothing that you did. It's all done according to Christ. The only thing that is going to keep us from being condemned is the answer that the holy and perfect and righteous God has given us. That is the cross of Christ. He lived the life that you couldn't live. He obeyed God perfectly. He died the death that was rightfully yours. And because of that, now we have this opportunity to stand before a holy and righteous God, declared not guilty, not because we've earned it, but because of what Christ has done on our behalf. That is the ultimate act of love. That is the ultimate act of mercy and grace. That is the proof that God is a good and kind God. That he sent his son to die on the cross on our behalf. And we should respond to that truth with a life of repentance. Turning from our sin and turning to God rather than trying to continue to live in a life of sin and not repent. Verse 5, we see that Paul says, those who don't repent, they are storing up wrath for themselves. The unbeliever, that person who's not willing to repent and turn to God, they are storing up wrath on themselves. Understand this, God will punish every sin, not just sin in general. He will punish every sin. It's like the serial murderer who goes on trial and he's killed five people. He's murdered five people. He's not just on trial for murder. He's on trial for five different murders. And so we are on trial for each and every sin that we've ever committed. You're either going to be declared guilt-free because of what Christ has done on your behalf or you're going to be declared guilty and go to hell. And the punishment will always fit the crime. Because God is judging sin according to his character. And that is why when we have, when we understand the fact that our God is good, that he is holy, he is righteous, he is merciful to, to us, we should, that should lead us to our knees. That gives me to my next and final point. The kindness of God, it should lead to repentance. It's verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of, of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. It's another rhetorical question there. That God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. And he says, do you presume? Do you take lightly? Do you take for granted God's goodness and kindness over your life? I like how the NASB translates this verse. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? We have taken God's kindness for granted. 
Not just us, but that's really all of mankind. We understand that the very fact that we were able to wake up this morning, that we are able to breathe and put on clothes and have breakfast and fellowship with others, that's God being kind to just mankind in general. The fact that people have food on the table, that's evidence that God is a good and kind God. But yet instead of praising God for that, we turn from God and instead of living a life of repentance, we continue to live in our sin. God's kindness is meant to lead people to repentance. Here he says, for, for his forbearance. What does that mean? It means that really it's this withholding of judgment. That, that God is actively withholding his judgment from people. In this present state, in the, in, in the world that we live, God is withholding the judgment that is rightfully ours from us. That's what it means for his forbearance. God is, it says he is patient with us. As, as John MacArthur notes, that this signifies that God has the power to avenge and to judge justly, but he doesn't use it. He chooses not to. He's being patient with us. He's, in a sense, as the NSB says, he, he's kind of, he has his tolerance for us at this present state. And that is meant to lead us to the cross of Christ, but instead... We continue to choose to live a life of sin. If, if you're not repenting, understand this. There's only two responses to the kindness of God. You're either repenting or you're not. The fact that God has not judged us for our sin, that should lead us to repentance. It does not mean that we are off the hook. It does not mean that God isn't going to deal with sin eventually. It's that he has been good and kind to us. The fact that we haven't been exposed yet, our deepest and darkest sins haven't been exposed yet, it's evidence that God is kind, that he is merciful, and that he is just, and that he, we have to understand, will judge sin according to his character. The fact that we haven't received that judgment yet is proof that God is gracious and kind. The kindness of God is meant to just bring us on our knees before the cross of Christ and to turn from our sin and to turn to Christ for forgiveness and salvation. That is why God hasn't judged us yet. It is meant to lead you to your knees to a life of repentance. This isn't a one-time thing. We understand that we are evil people, that we are wretched people, and that we must be repented. It must become a part of our daily exercise of life, understanding that we don't glorify God every chance that we get. And so we must, we must repent to God and understand that even if we feel like we didn't sin, there was at some point where most likely you did, and you need to turn and repent to God. Do not get comfortable with the mercy of God that you choose to not repent and that it leads that comfortableness leads you to sin even more. We must not get comfortable with the mercy of God. It is meant to lead us to repentance. See, the two responses, like I said, you either repent or as, chapter, as verse 5 says, your heart grows harder. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on a day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. 
impenitent heart. Here it is. It's unrepentant heart. It's meant for that person who just will not repent. They will choose no matter what to continue to live in their sin, continue to live the way they want, not realizing that God has been kind to them. And so they continue and continue and continue to live their life. And what Paul's saying is that person, that unrepentant heart, those people who, cho- who choose not to turn to God, they are storing up wrath for yourself, for themselves. Don't be like that person. Don't misunderstand the kindness of God as, a, as that he's given you permission to keep living in your sin. The kindness of God is meant to bring us to our knees before a holy and perfect and righteous God and understand that his son was dealt with. If you want to understand how God views sin, look at the crucifixion of Christ. See the type of pain and suffering that Christ suffered on the cross. And that is what God thinks of sin. Turn to the Old Testament. Look at the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. That is what God thinks of sin. And he's saying that he's been gracious and kind to us, that he hasn't judged us yet. And that should lead us to our knees to thank God for the fact that we are still here, that we still have this opportunity to turn to him. The kindness of God is meant to lead people to repentance. As I close, if anyone here maybe doesn't understand, is not sure where they fall in terms of whether they understand God as their Lord and Savior, or to anyone listening who maybe isn't sure to the unbeliever, understand this. God has been kind to you. The life that you have been living has really earned you a one-trip trip train to hell. But because of God's kindness, because of who he is, he has withheld his judgment from people. You have to understand that God is the creator of all things, that God created everything. He breathes life into his creation. And that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And every single one of us is guilty before a perfect and holy and righteous God, but that God has given us an out. God has given us a way to heaven. That is through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ that he came he lived a life he followed all of God's law perfectly which we cannot do and then went to the cross and died the death that was rightfully yours we understand that sin is death Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if you're here and you haven't accepted Christ into your heart, if you're here and you're wondering what that looks like, talk to me after. Talk to anyone you see up here on the stage. We would love to engage with you in the conversation on what it looks like to have Christ as your Lord and Savior, to put your trust in him and be at peace with God today. That kindness that I've been talking about, the grace and mercy that I've been talking about is available to you. Please, don't let another day go by without asking questions, without seeking out the truth that we, have, that we see in the scriptures. For the believer in here, we stand before a perfect and holy God declared righteous 
Understand that your sin has already been dealt with. That you've put your trust in a perfect and holy in, in, in his son. And so now you stand before God. Justified. By the faith that you have. And now you are at peace with God. We are to live our life according to that. We should be reevaluating our lives on a daily basis, asking God to help us, to strengthen us, to give us the strength that we need to overcome sin in our life. That's how we need to be living. We need to be living life asking God for the strength, joining in with the saints, asking people to hold us accountable. Oftentimes what we like to do in the church is we like to speak of our struggles. We like to speak of our sin in the past tense. You're gathered with someone and you, and you talk about your sin like, oh, this is what I struggled with. But to be honest, to be truthful, we have to talk with our struggles as if we are currently in it. Because that's the truth. We, we are living a life and it's hard here. We see the world as it is. And so we are to live with one another, we are to love one another. We are to admonish and lift up one another, teach each other, bring each other up, encourage one another, pray for one another. You can't do this Christian life on your own. We need God and we need the body. We need believers to hold us accountable, to point us to God. We must make repentance a daily exercise in our life. So that we don't take for granted the kindness and mercy of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you and we thank you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your son to die on the cross on our behalf, Father. So oftentimes we don't take time to focus on the fact that you are a good and kind God. That we deserve your wrath. But because of your son, we've been given your grace. We've been given your mercy. We've been given your love, Father. May your kindness, may it lead us to our knees before you, Father. May, we, may it lead us to repent of anything, any wrongdoing in our lives, Father. Help us to live a life that brings you glory, Father. May we boast in you and you alone, Father, and the fact that you are a loving, a merciful, and gracious God. May that be where we get our strength. May that be where we get our courage. May we stand on that truth, not on our own deeds, but on what Christ has done on our behalf, Father. Thank you. We pray that as we go about on this Lord's day, a day that is set apart for you, Father. Help us to remain in your word. Help us to remain in prayer throughout the day, Father. Be with us. We pray all this in your son's mighty and powerful name. Amen. Usually, we have our communion on the first Sunday of the month, but since we